We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Four Patriots Studios. Whether you're looking for some survival food with a 25-year shelf life, a backup solar generator, or just some really cool equipment to make your next camping trip a breeze, use the code WARRIOR for a 10% discount on your first order at 4 That's the number, 4 Before we get to today's guest, a, a brief tribute. I just learned this morning that a good friend of mine and a supporter of American Warrior Radio passed away suddenly last night. John Esslinger tried to enlist in the military during the Vietnam conflict, but the military wouldn't have him, so he found a way to go anyway. He served two tours in Vietnam, but was never in the military. I'll allow you to draw your own conclusions there. John occasionally guest hosted for me. He was a small man with a huge passion for life and helping other people. A happy contrails, wingman. Back in 2021, we had noted military historian John McManus on the show to discuss perhaps one of the most bizarre conflicts of World War II. Look it up. It was the Battle of Castle Itter. At the time, John had just released the second book in his trilogy about the U.S. Army in the Pacific during World War II. The final work in that series is now out, To the End of the Earth, the U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan. Professor McManus is often called upon as a subject matter expert, so we decided to reach out to him again to educate us about these hard-won battles that finally brought World War II to a close. Uh, Professor John McManus, welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Ben. Uh, Sir, you're a prolific writer. I think that, I mean, my favorite book that you ever wrote was still the U.S. Military History for Dummies. But how many books have you published? So this new one is my 15th. Wow. Okay. And it's a great read. I, I tell you, I, and I'll mention this throughout the program quite a bit because I'm so impressed. Your research is just amazing. And I consider myself a pretty good World War II history buff, but I always learn something new from your book. As I recall, John, you decided to write this series because you felt that the Army was getting sort of short shrift for their role in the Pacific War. We'll hear a lot about the Navy, hear, hear a lot about the Marines, but we hadn't heard that much about the Army. But they did the majority of the fighting, didn't they? Yeah, they really did. And so the World War II-oriented historian, always looking for something original. And believe it or not, there are still a lot of relatively unexplored topics on the war. That's how earth-shattering an event it was. And so it occurred to me that sort of in our popular memory of the war against Japan, there was this sense that, uh, you know, the Army just kind of focused on dealing with Europe and that the Marines did the ground fighting in the Pacific. And that, that really just couldn't be further from the truth. Certainly, the Army fought in Europe, but you have 21-plus divisions of Army soldiers who fight in the Pacific. There was about 1.8 million American ground soldiers who fought in that war, and that's the third largest one overseas to fight a war. So it's really not a matter of sort of uh, downplaying or denigrating the Marine Corps. That's quite the opposite of what I'm doing, I think, because when you get a sense of how small the, the Marine Corps was, you really see how major the contributions were. But I think that the value of understanding the Army's experience is that you really get a much better grasp of what the war really was and all of its sort of many kind of troubling legacies that are really still with us today. And that it wasn't just sort of a, a Navy-to-Navy kind of war, but there was an awful lot of ground fighting that needed to be done. And uh, that that set the tone for much of what we've seen ever since. And when you talk, John, about the soldiers' Army, are you including the Army Air Corps? 
And no, I'm not even excluding that. Right. It's just the ground pounders. And, and to me, that's what's even more staggering because, yeah, in my scope in this is primarily uh, our ground soldiers. And, of course, yeah, I mean, back in those days, the Air Force was part of the Army. And I should also qualify that and say I'm also sort of looking into the experience sometimes of the aviation engineers. And that's a big part of the war is all the airfields that are built on the various islands. And it's Army ground soldiers who have to do that. And then, of course, the, the air power is extremely important. So is the sea power. I would never argue otherwise. But in the end, someone had to control the ground. And that's ultimately kind of the arena of decision, just in my opinion. And that's, you know, just the pace of the war. So this, uh, To the End of the Earth is, is as I mentioned, it's the third book in, in your trilogy. This one picks up just prior to the invasion of the Philippines and takes us through the end of the war with Japan. Of course, that meant the end of World War II as well. And I tell you, it's interesting to me the, the characters that played a part in this conflict and executing this program. Really an interesting cast of characters. Of course, we start with General Douglas MacArthur and huge ego on this guy. Yeah, I like to say that his ego on a good day might have fit inside the Grand Canyon. Maybe. He was just this sort of larger-than-life figure. Uh, he was vainglorious. He was Somewhat megalomaniacal, uh, certainly egomaniacal, but he was also deeply insecure, and he was also honorable in so many ways, mm -hmm. too. So he's a he's a fascinating figure, and he really is kind of the lead actor, uh, certainly for the Army in the in the Pacific Asia theater. And uh, the invasion of the Philippines, yeah, the book begins there, with the, the invasion of Luzon specifically that's happening in January 1945. Of course, a few months prior to that, MacArthur's forces that invaded Leyte, uh, in the kind of central part of the archipelago. So... The, the sort of larger point that I hope comes across is that by this time, January 45, MacArthur's command is really enormous. I mean, he has enormous ground forces under his control, second only to Eisenhower's forces in the European theater. So there's a lot of combat power, and the, the liberation of the Philippines is just an extraordinary undertaking that is enormously costly, you know, in terms of casualties, of course, but also the logistical side as well, and I try and shine a light on that. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that because I had no idea, and I want to talk about that a little bit later in the program, just the amount of material and manpower and ships and aircraft. And well, so, so for MacArthur, this was also personal, right, because he had been ordered out of the Philippines when the Japanese overran those territories. Right. So FDR, uh, President Roosevelt, had ordered him in uh, February, March 1942, when, of course, the Japanese were on the verge of uh, defeating a uh, Phil-American force in the archipelago. And that was, of course, the early stage of the war, and it was terribly traumatic. About 21,000 Americans were taken prisoner, probably at least three to four times that many Filipino soldiers. And so the Washington government just simply felt that it would be too devastating to national morale to lose MacArthur. So that's when he's ordered out. And yet to him, coming back to liberate the Philippines is, I mean, at a minimum a crusade, if there's a bigger word for that kind of concept, then it would be that in MacArthur's mind. And, it, and to him, you know, liberating the, the Philippines and its people, 17 to 18 million people, was really almost handsome out to winning the war. That to him, it was almost above getting to the Japanese home islands themselves in some respects. So he had lobbied long and hard for this campaign. He had amassed resources. He'd done a lot of bureaucratic fighting to make this happen. And so by January 45, he's kind of in the middle of the project. You know, you'd had Leyte a few months earlier. And then, of course, fighting is going to rage in the Philippines all the way through to the end of World War II in August 1945. 
Uh, John, we hear a lot about the Battle of Midway that's been memorialized in you know popular movies, but in my opinion, I'd like to see what you think about this. Really, the beginning of the real end for the Japanese was the Battle of Leyte Gulf, I mean, the great turkey shoot. I mean, that's pretty much that cut the legs out from underneath their, their naval aircraft and their air force as well. Right. I mean, in a way, those battles are a couple of different animals. You know, Midway kind of stops that initial Japanese momentum that happens in June 1942. And it is, you know, certainly thought of as a major turning point. The Battle of the Philippine Sea, which is the Marianas Turkey shoot, happens in June 1944. And that was, of course, a devastating defeat for the Imperial Japanese Navy. And it's one of the things that allows MacArthur's forces to continue that advance for the Philippines. And, of course, Nimitz's forces in the Central Pacific are going to be doing more island hopping, ultimately, in on Okinawa. The Battle of Leyte Gulf, fought in October 1944, kind of administers the coup de grace to any further offensive capability of the Imperial Japanese Navy. And so by the last stages of the war, the Battle of Okinawa, the Japanese have some naval hardware left, but really not much. And so mostly what they're using their naval and certainly their, their air forces for is in the, you know, famously the suicide attacks by Kamikaze. So that they've been kind of reduced to that. And they can still do a lot of damage. I mean, the Battle of Okinawa is the deadliest battle in the history of the United States Navy, mainly because of the Kamikaze's. But uh, you had begun to see Kakazis used as of the Battle of Lake Gulf several months earlier. That's the, sort of the interesting component to this. So the accumulation of all this had, had really uh, badly, badly damaged the Japanese. John, we need to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about two other characters that really stood out to me in the book, uh, General Walter Kruger and General Robert Eichelberger. Seems like you almost couldn't find two distinctly different men. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're speaking with Professor John McManus. He's got the third book in his trilogy about the Army in the Pacific in World War II. It's called To the End of the Earth, and that will be on bookshelves near you on May 2nd coming up. Uh, John, let me ask you this. Was there ever any doubt? You said MacArthur lobbied pretty hard, but in your mind and your research, is there ever any, any doubt that he would be the guy sent back to take care of this conflict? Well, once the grand strategists have decided to go ahead and invade the Philippines, there's no question that MacArthur will lead allied forces there. There would have been no other person who they would have even thought of for that job. The question is, you know, were the Allies going to go back to the Philippines? I mean, that's really the issue here. And so this is sort of hashed out in the summer of 1944 between MacArthur, Nimitz, Admiral William Leahy, and President Roosevelt at a famous meeting in uh, Oahu, in which, more or less, MacArthur wins most of the arguments. The momentum begins to drift towards coming back to the Philippines. The other option might have been to, to invade at Formosa, or what we now call Taiwan. And that's what Admiral Ernest King, the chief of naval operations, wanted to do. Ultimately, of course, he loses the argument. So, yeah, there, there's no question that MacArthur is going to be the guy to, to uh, you know, mastermind the Philippines liberation campaign. General Kruger, General Walter Kruger, uh, kind of a, I mean, looking back, his life is, I guess, kind of a sad story in many ways. I mean, this guy went from an enlisted private all the way to the rank of general, so he definitely had some skills. Uh, you talked about MacArthur... You know, one of the upsides of him was he was tremendously loyal, but Kruger was really testing MacArthur's patience. I mean, MacArthur was chomping at the Brit, and Kruger was a little bit more methodical, I guess. 
Yeah, Walter Kruger was totally self-made uh, guy in the Army, and uh, he was an immigrant, actually. He was one of two U.S. Army generals in World War II who were foreign-born. Kruger was born in Germany. The other foreign-born general was Ben Lear, who was born in Canada. And I often joke, like, well, I don't know if that really counts. But <laughs> yeah, it does. But, but uh, in Kruger's case, you know, his, his father was in the German Army, and he had died. Uh, and so Kruger's mother packed up uh, the family and moved them, actually, to, to my neck of the woods, to St. Louis, Missouri, where I think Kruger had an uncle. And uh, so, you know, they make lives for themselves. They had to learn a completely new country and culture and language. Uh, he was multilingual, spoke English without really hardly any trace of an accent, and obviously German. He spoke Spanish and French. Um, and when the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898, Kruger joined the Army as a 17-year-old private. Uh, and so this began this really kind of rags-to-riches military career in which not only did Kruger have no West Point pedigree, he had no college degree and no high school diploma, and yet he becomes, wow. uh, by World War II, he's a three-star general, and he commands Sixth Army, and he commanded more American ground soldiers in the Pacific Theater than any other individual. And you're right, he was methodical, He the word associated with him often is cautious, but he was intellectual, too, in his own way, and he had a really good grasp of the average soldier, because he used to be one. He was mm. courageous in his own way, too, but really not the right guy for what MacArthur wanted once his forces got ashore in Luzon, which was a quick dash to Manila. And Kruger just wasn't really wired that way. So I like to think that really he should have tapped Kruger's great rival, Lieutenant General Robert Eichelberger, who commanded 8th Army for that job, because he was really more of the quick dash kind of commander, similar to his West Point classmate, George Patton. Well, and that's what's also fascinating, the relationship between Eichelberger and Patton. I mean, you're talking about blood and guts Patton. Eichelberger was sort of, I don't know if it would be fair to say that they were in a competition, but they were of the same philosophy. I mean, Eichelberger was, you, your book, you say he led from out front, often carrying a Tommy gun himself, but he also wrote his wife and described Kruger as molasses in wintertime. <laughs> exactly. So to Eichelberger, Kruger was just too slow. And think about Eichelberger. He has a fascinating background, too. He was the son of a, a Civil War veteran, a Union veteran from Ohio, who was a successful lawyer, uh, kind of a gentleman farmer. And Eichelberger came from this big family, which he was the youngest. And so he was never taken very seriously. So soldiering was his way to kind of achieve something that, that would lead to distinction. And he was, he was West Point class in 1909, in which, of course, he was classmates with Patton. And I found that the two of them remained in touch during World War II. They greatly admired each other. Uncle Berger was the kind of person who had friends all over the army because he was so he was so friendly. He was charming. He was warm. He was inviting. Yeah, you know, he was a he was a guy who just liked people. And um, and he was the kind of person. His concept of war was lead from the front, be a combat leader, and achieve objectives quickly. Use all kinds of combined arms and mechanization and just your individual drive to gain objectives. So. Eichelberger, Kruger was a rude person, brusque, and kind of slow in his ways. Kruger saw Eichelberger as too indulgent with his staff, too nice to people. And so it's odd because they were both very honorable, honest men. They were both great husbands to their wives. They really had more in common than otherwise. But in this respect, it was like oil and water. And so there was a rivalry, and MacArthur played one against the other for his own objectives as the whole thing unfolds. John, we got in just a couple minutes, but there's one thing, the other common theme I see throughout your book on both sides, both on the American and the Japanese side, 
is this just horrible misjudging of, of the resolve and the numbers of enemy troops. I mean, I think on Corregidor, you said that the, the U.S. side estimated, you know, their estimates were like five times smaller than the actual number of Japanese on the island. Do you think that was just the fog of war, or was it also a byproduct of all these folks jockeying to, to be MacArthur's favorite? I think a big part of it is just the, the, uh, the paucity of human intel. You don't have agents on Corregidor, for instance, who can tell you that the Japanese garrison is 5,000 rather than 800. And so you're making these educated guesses. And MacArthur's uh, intelligence officer was a guy named Charles Willoughby. He himself, by the way, was also an immigrant from Germany and kind of self-made in the army. And he, his agenda was often too often to kind of please MacArthur in the sense of telling him what he wanted to hear rather than what might be true. Exactly. And so there are times in the story when Willoughby has some really great insight, but I think in terms of all the the assets he enjoys, all the advantages, I, I take him to task quite a bit in this series because I think he ought to have probably come up with better estimates than he did. And so there are many times throughout the Pacific War where the Americans don't have a very good feel for how many Japanese they're going to be facing or where they are, and not just in MacArthur's command. You see this in other places throughout the Pacific as well, like in the Marianas Campaign and, and uh, places like Biak and so on and so forth. So on the Japanese side, I don't think they have a full grasp of the, the sheer size and scale and potency of the American forces, not just combat-wise, but also, again, in terms of the supply girth that the Americans bring with them. It's kind of staggering and overwhelming to the Japanese. There's a, a quote, and I, again, this is what I love about your book. I don't know where you got all this information, John, but you talk about one of the Japanese soldiers in his diary. I don't know if it was on Iwo Jima or, or Okinawa, where he came out. You know, they had all these fortifications, these tunnels and caves that they'd built. And he comes out and he looks down at the harbor and he sees just all these ships and all these soldiers landing. And he's, he, in his diary, he writes, you know, my God, what have we gotten ourselves into? I mean, you know, what kind of enemy are we up against here? So that happened at Okinawa, okay. and also he went on further in his diary that it seemed to him as if, as he looked out at the uh, the harbor, that really most of it was ships and not water. You know, <laughs> that, was, that was how staggering the fleet was. So in this series, one of the things I'm very excited about is how much of the Japanese point of view I was able to convey. Okay. Especially like the average soldier, soldier diaries and all that, you know, so okay. stuff. John, sorry, well, we got to take another break. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Beeler-Garcia. We're talking to Professor John McManus. Check out the book. It's called To the End of the Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Four Patriots studios. At Four Patriots, they believe in freedom and self-reliance, and they give your family the tools to achieve both. Visit Four Patriots. That's the number, fourpatriots.com. Use the code WARRIOR for a 10% discount off your first order. We're back with Professor John McManus. Professor McManus is just a prolific writer, and I really enjoy his books. I learn something every time I read one of them. His latest work, the last in the trilogy about the U.S. Army in the Pacific War, is called To the End of the Earth, the U.S. Army and the Downfall of Japan. That will be hitting the bookshelves in early May. John, there's a number of battles that you detail in your book, and we're not going to have time to cover them all. But Corregidor it was of tactical importance, obviously, 
but also there's a sense of pride involved in that because unless I'm mistaken, that was General MacArthur's last stop before he was ordered to evacuate. You're right. That had been his headquarters in 1942. I mean, basically these paratroopers were jumping onto the equivalent of a postage stamp and a lot of, you know, broken stumps. There's a lot of things that can go wrong even without the Japanese shooting at you. And it was a very, very hard one and, and bloody battle. Yeah, it really was. So, so Corregidor is, is like this island out in the middle of Manila Bay, and the U.S. Army engineers have fortified it in the years before World War II. And, of course, MacArthur, as I mentioned, had located its headquarters there. And so Corregidor was heavily bombarded in the spring of 1942. Uh, MacArthur escapes from there when he, when he makes good on FDR's orders to leave, and he gets to Australia. But Corregidor is then invaded by the Japanese in early May, and, and the garrison there is overwhelmed. So you kind of had to have it back if you were going to use Manila Bay to its full potential. So there was that side of it that made it valuable. And also, like you said, then, the sort of pride side of this, the redemption side. And so the job of going in and taking Corregidor uh, was going to be an airborne and amphibious operation. So the 503rd parachute infantry does this jump. I think it's like, to my knowledge, the smallest drop zone that American paratroopers jump into in World War II. It's the size of a, of a hole or two on a golf course or something. And there is a, actually a little golf course there. There's old barracks. And the place has been bombarded. You can imagine the uneven ground, all the tree stumps and the rocks. So there's a lot of jump injuries. But the 503rd lands surprisingly intact. The Japanese really are surprised by this airborne drop. And then you're going to have troops in the 34th Infantry Regiment land via landing craft. They come across from the Bataan Peninsula. Well, this turns into about a 10-day to two-week methodical battle of just sort of cleaning the Japanese out of these dugout and sort of cave-like positions throughout the island. And it's a battle of annihilation. There's between four and 5,000 Japanese there who mostly fight to the death. So very, very close quarters fighting. And yet, when the Americans do basically secure the island, there's a uh, ceremony there, and uh, MacArthur and his staff show up for it. They raise the flag again over what had been the U.S. Army barracks, and uh, as MacArthur, I think, quite eloquently put it, let no enemy ever take that flag down. I tell you, one thing that really struck me, and again, you use the personal descriptions and letters home and diaries from the soldiers that actually fought this conflict, so some of them are pretty brusque, and one of the things that really made me sit up is you say that the amount of death on that island on Corregidor, and the stench was so bad that even ships passing by, sometimes the sailors aboard those ships would get sick at the smell. So, real quick also, i tell you, one of my favorite missions, if you will, involved the, and see if I can pronounce this correctly, Kabanatuan Rescue. Kabanatuan. Uh-huh. I mean, that was really cool. You know, you talk about the Alamo Scouts, which I think don't get, they didn't get enough press in the Second World War, certainly the Rangers did. But just what an amazing mission that was. Could not have been pulled off without the help of the Filipino soldiers as well, the rebels, if you will. Yeah, and that's an insight into the campaign because the Filipinos are a major, major player in their own liberation. And, of course, the campaign, you'd had these Filipino guerrilla resistance groups that had been bubbling up for a couple of years by then. And sometimes Americans sprinkled in with them and sometimes U.S. military, sometimes just Americans. I uh, happened to be there, you know, so... By the time you've got these regular army forces fighting in 1945, uh, the Philippine guerrillas are a major force multiplier. So uh, nowhere more 
In order that were true, then the uh, Liberation of Cabanatulan, which was a POW camp holding several hundred mostly U.S. Army prisoners who had been captive for almost three years by then. And it's this great coup de main behind Japanese lines to go and get these guys and return them to uh, the control of U.S. Army forces. So the 6th Ranger Infantry Battalion gets the sort of leading role in tandem with the guerrillas, and they get pretty much everybody out. And you see the kind of rescue operation happen on Luzon multiple times that spring of 1945. So you have the liberation of more U.S. military POWs at an old prison in Manila called Milabid. You've got a university called Santo Tomas, where primarily American civilians had been interned, but also quite significantly, a U.S. Army female nurses who had been in captivity for three years. And then the last major operation, and this one also involves the paratroopers, this time from the 11th Airborne Division, a place called Los Baños, which was uh, home to about 2,000 plus civilian internees. And it's when you look at the, the totality of these operations and you consider how they could have ended incredibly tragically with the slaughter of prisoners or whatever, none of that happens and these raids generally come off really, really successfully. And that one rescue, I think that's the one, if I get the name right, I believe the name of the film was The Great Raid. It was, yeah. yeah. It, it really portrays that very well, and especially like the ranger tactics and the importance of the guerrillas, the, uh, the, the really tense environment. And the other thing... I don't know if the, if the film made quite clear, is that the guys who were in that camp at that time were really the last few American POWs in the Philippines. In the months leading up to the American invasion, the Japanese had generally evacuated most of the American POWs to elsewhere in their empire to use basically as slave labor. And they had left behind the people they felt were in the worst physical condition. So those guys who get liberated are lucky to have lived and had not been moved elsewhere to be slave laborers in Japan or wherever. That, you know, that's something else that's interesting. The, I almost got a sense there was a disconnect between the high command of the Japanese army and the leadership on the ground who actually had to put up a resistance, a fight against this American behemoth. And a lot of cases, their strategy was, okay, let's not try and even attempt to defend the beaches. Let's go back. Let's build tunnels. Let's just sort of fight almost a, a defensive guerrilla war. Well, and, and, and at this point in the war, that was the most intelligent way to approach it, because with the incredible American advantages and air and sea power, they were probably going to get ashore wherever they wanted to invade. So the value of Japanese forces at this point, particularly committed, uh, well-trained, idealistic soldiers, was basically to bleed the Americans, because strategically, that's what could accomplish the most at this point in the war, to kind of wear down American resolve to see the war through to its end. That was the best hope for Japan at this point. So you see that pattern throughout 1945. You see it in the Philippines. You see it certainly at Okinawa. And you can see the kind of damage the Japanese could inflict. I mean, these battles were absolutely horrifying in how costly they were, how bloody. And the, you know, the cost in so-called non-battle casualties, yeah. people with disease, people with you know, foot problems, combat fatigue, whatever. All of that was adding up to some serious issues. Uh, so... I think the Japanese were really intelligent to fight that way. And I, I would say just as a kind of a general overview of analyzing Japanese soldiers in World War II, they were generally more effective on defense than offense. Mm -hmm. On offense, they were vulnerable to U.S. firepower. The commanders didn't use combined arms all that well. They didn't have that much artillery. On defense, they could hunker down. Famously, we all know they were usually willing to fight to the death. And that meant they were very dangerous adversaries. So you see that pattern almost everywhere towards the end here. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Professor McManus cited those those non-battle-related casualties in the book. He talks about the Sixth Army alone lost 93,400 men 
to non-battle casualties, mosquitoes, malaria, jaundice, fatigue, uh, dysentery. And I think, John, that's that's more than we lost in Normandy. Oh, I mean, certainly of non-battle casualties. Right. In Normandy, our total casualties are going to scrape out at about 120 to 126,000. Uh, but, you know... <laughs> I mean, okay. regardless, you know, there's a lot of losses. And, and yeah, I do think it, that Luzon compares with Normandy in terms of the, the sheer size of the operations, how many Americans are involved. And, of course, the other thing that's different here, too, from Normandy is that this is almost exclusively a U.S. operation. Sure. The main ally you're working with is, is uh, Filipinos, sure. local guerrillas. John, we come back. I want to wrap this up, talk a little bit about the, the end. Uh, we've already talked about the beginning of the end, but we're going to talk about the end. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Garcia. Stick around. We're broadcasting from the Ford Patriots studios. At Ford Patriots, they believe in freedom and self-reliance, and they give your family the tools to achieve both. Visit 4Patriots, that's the number, 4Patriots.com. Use the code WARRIOR for a 10% discount off your first order. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler Garcia. We're speaking with Professor John McManus. Professor McManus is often called upon as a subject matter expert. He's a prolific writer. We're talking about his latest book, To the End of the Earth, that talks about the U.S. Army and the downfall of Japan and the Pacific during the Second World War. John, I touched on this earlier in the program, but just the logistics. By the time we get to Okinawa, the U.S. has, has almost mastered this. And there's this huge armada, and there's these oil tankers. I don't know if you saw the original Battle of the Bulge movie. I don't know when it came out, maybe in the 60s or 70s. But the colonel who's leading the panzer attack sits his general down and plops down a wrapped package. And the general's like, what's that? And, and, and he says, well, it's cake. It's chocolate cake. And the general's like, well, so what? And the colonel's like, well, what? do you realize what that means? It means that the Americans have got enough airplanes and fuel to fly cake across the Atlantic Ocean, and that's what we're up against. And I kind of get that sense there in the Pacific by the time we're coming up to Okinawa and then eventually the invasion of the homeland that never happened. Just the, the amount of resources that we had on our side was incredible. It was just staggering. I mean, you're basically moving American cities across the ocean in many ways. And, of course, every single thing that goes in theater has to be put aboard ship somewhere in most cases. Maybe we're flown, but mainly they're moving freight and people by ships. And uh, so this is staggering, the planning that has to go into it, the loading and unloading operations. And, of course, as you mentioned, the largesse is just beyond imagination. So by the time you've got Americans setting up bases in the Philippines, You've got baseball fields, baseball equipment, got liquor of every type and description, food of every type and description, you know. So same thing, of course, will happen at Okinawa once the Americans have sort of secured it by June, July 1945. So it, it, that, I think that's what stood up to me is not just conveying what the battles were like, but conveying what was needed for support and what life was like, what the experience was like, what kind of material you would have had at your disposal and and uh, what it all looked like and maybe sounded like. You know, by this point in the war, the Navy had really become, in my opinion, the most powerful Navy in the history of the planet. And one of the things that had helped them do that is that they had really mastered forward logistics. So keeping a lot of shipping at sea devoted just to supplying the more famous 
capital ships and whatnot to make sure that you have this constant cycle of supply ships moving oil forward or moving letters or moving ammo or food or whatever it needed to be. The Army is doing much of that same thing, just at land, and it allows the U.S. to keep up this kind of staggering momentum to operations, and the Japanese, by the spring, summer 45, just cannot hold up to see the multiple blows landing on them. John, I don't want to give too much away. I want people to read the book, but I will just kind of toss a little tease out there. One of my favorite parts of the book involved the 2nd Battalion, 148th Infantry Regiment. They're waiting for the engineers to build a, a bridge a crossing there in the, in the Philippines, and they start to explore, and they stumble across these warehouses and find this amber liquid. And that was a couple of really good days for those soldiers, huh? Yes, it's the ultimate dream for an infantry soldier, especially in a warm-weather climate, finding an intact operating brewery. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. So this unit, uh, that battalion, was part of the 37th Infantry Division, really hard-fighting unit that had been fighting since uh, the South Pacific. And they're about to really plunge into the urban maw of Manila at that point. And that's a major part of this book, the horrifying battle in Manila. So in this case, these guys come across just this abandoned brewery that's just gushing beer. And it's cool. It's cold or cool beer. And so you can imagine how many guys are rushing in, getting helmets full of it, uh, people <laughs> bathed in it. Um, they put it in their canteens. And so these guys were very happily buzzed as they're waiting for the engineers to complete their work. And then, you know, and actually, these are some of the guys who go forward and, and liberate Bilibid, the, the, one of the prisons I mentioned earlier. So that I think almost any soldier who served in that battalion would have told you that was the high point of this war. I'm not mistaken. I think San Miguel is still producing beer, and it's pretty damn good last time I recall. Uh, exactly. Right. That's right. John, if at the end, the, the closing scene, if you will, if we did have to move, on, you know, if it weren't for the, the atomic bombs, this armada that MacArthur and his Navy contemporaries put together, it would have been maybe the largest fleet in history, over 3,000 ships. But it almost turned out differently in that there was an attempted coup amongst the Japanese kind of mid-level officers. And if that coup had succeeded, forget the atomic bombs, that, that country would have pretty much fought to complete another devastation. Is that sort of your take? This is a, it's a real possibility. And so what's happened here, the Allies have conceived of something called Operation Downfall, which is basically the plan for the invasion of Japan. And it's going to be a kind of a two-stage invasion, Kruger's 6th Army, to invade at Kyushu in November 65. That was called Operation Olympic. And then in March of 46, Eichelberger's 8th Army, and also the uh, 1st Army, which is going to be redeployed from Europe, was going to invade like near Tokyo um, on Honshu in March 1946. In the meantime, of course, the atomic bombings happened. The Soviets entered the war uh, and just completely waylay uh, Japanese military forces in Manchuria. So um, after, even after those two body blows, uh, this group of Japanese officers kill the general who commanded Hirohito's bodyguard and attempt to go and find uh, the recording that Hirohito had famously put together to broadcast to the Japanese public to let them know it was time to lay down their arms. So they wanted to stop that in its tracks. They wanted to take Hirohito himself hostage and continue fighting the war. Um, and this is, again, this is after the atomic bombing. So I, I really think that some of those sort of latter-year moralizers against the bombing sort of glazed past that, um, <laughs> that there were still some people in Japan who were willing to kind of suicidally fight to the end, 
even after these horrifying bombings and, of course, after the fire bombings that had gone on in the spring and summer 1945. So it was it was really kind of a, a complex situation. Fortunately, the, the, the coup plotters failed, but who knows? They, they might have succeeded, and, I, and I'm sure there would have been plenty of Japanese, you know, who would have been willing to continue to fight. Everybody? No. But enough to, to uh, cause a lot of death and damage. And by the way, really, not just to the Americans, but to the Japanese. They would have paid the biggest price for sure. potential invasion. Yeah, that's something else I found I really learned from your book is I, based on contemporary film and stuff, you, I always thought that the, the kamikaze bombers, suicide bombers were, I mean, just what a terrible waste of both human lives and equipment. But I didn't realize that the, in some ways, and I think you said off of Okinawa, they were actually terribly effective. I mean, the amount of damage they did to our ships and our sailors and soldiers aboard these these ships was just terrific. It really was. Uh, they sank at least 30 ships. Uh, there were over 4,900 sailors killed in uh, in the Battle of Okinawa, mostly mostly to kamikazes. The the Japanese also this isn't as well known, but the kamikazes also um, ran missions against targets on Okinawa, including U.S. controlled airfields and the like. And and of course, if we're thinking about the potential invasion of Japan, um, the Japanese still had thousands upon thousands of planes, um, and if even, even if only maybe 10 to 20% got through, that could still administer a terrific amount of damage. And one of the lessons they had learned, by the way, after Okinawa, was to, to send their suicide planes after troop ships and supply ships rather than the, uh, the big glamorous carriers and other warships, because... Really, you know, that was the sinews of the American War, and that's the, the invasion force that would have been coming for Japanese home soil. So if you could stop them, you could basically stop the invasion. John, we're just about at the end of the show, just a couple of minutes left. With the benefit of perfectly clear 2020 hindsight uh, as an expert, I'm sure we could have pulled this off without MacArthur. But your, your grade, A, B, C, D, you're a professor, you're used to grading people. Your grade from A to F for MacArthur and his execution of that campaign in the Pacific. In the whole Pacific or in the Philippines? It's a, well, it's a big gulf. That's a big semester if we're talking the whole Pacific. Um, Your choice. I, you know, I would give them a C to C+. Plus. Uh, as, as many who have either heard me speak or read my books know that I'm not terrifically enamored of MacArthur. Um, I think there's all sorts of mistakes that, that he makes in the course of the war, and especially in the first Philippines campaign. Um, but, you know, having said that, I, I think also... Especially by 1945, MacArthur's become a pretty innovative commander on a lot of levels in terms of understanding air and sea power, understanding combined arms operations. He has the, the luxury of arguably the finest American ground commander in the war underneath him and Lieutenant General Eichelberger, and he uses him very well, I think. And so I think overall MacArthur is a, is a solid general. I, I don't think he's one of the all-time greats, as he himself might have thought, and as some of his adherents would, would view it. But that's sort of the fun of this whole thing, that we could debate it, and I'm sure that somebody else could come up with uh, all sorts of reasons to, to grade him higher than I did. Well, and he was a professor of his own fan club. So, uh, Professor McManus, thank you so much for spending time with us. Ladies and gentlemen, the book, again, is called To the End of the Earth. That will be coming out uh, here in May. By the time you hear this program, it will be on bookshelves. Uh, professor, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to your next book. Oh, me too. I appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find over 500 podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. You can also stream us on whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, all policies and procedures are remain in place. Take care.
You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.